I'm Peter Smith, and this is the Bad Buying Podcast, Episode 4. I've worked in buying and procurement for over 30 years now. I've been a buyer, a procurement and purchasing director in the public and private sector, a consultant and run a website. I'm now mainly an author. And my latest book was published by Penguin Business on October the 8th, and it's called Bad Buying, How Organisations Waste Billions Through Failures, Frauds and F-Ups. I've been promoting the book in the last week or so, and uh, the highlight this week was the pleasure of appearing live on the Jeremy Vine show on uh, BBC Radio 2 in the UK, a show that has 7 million listeners, which is quite scary. And um, we had an interview and and Jeremy had uh, seemed to have read some of the book, which was great. And afterwards, I, I had my first Twitter troll who objected to something I said. Uh, actually, he or she made a fair point, and maybe we'll come back to that on a future edition of the podcast. In this podcast today, I'm going to talk about the third and final underlying driver of bad buying. I've talked in the last couple of editions uh, about lack of competence and knowledge, and then what I call stupidity or arrogance. So I'm going to talk today about criminality, fraud and corruption. I'm also going to talk about uh, some of the recent arguments over UK COVID-related contracts. And without getting too technical, uh, I'm going to discuss the issues of damages in contracts and related matters around supplier performance. But first, let's talk about buying-related fraud and corruption which is a fascinating topic, and there is just such a range of different examples of this. Uh, We we could talk about it all day, and it ranges from the relatively small scale to the absolutely huge. So starting at the the bottom end, there are constantly stories about insiders who manage to defraud their own companies uh, using, using tools related to buying and spending money, as it were. And just this week in the papers, there was a story about a a finance manager who stole, they reckon, £700,000, so a million dollars or so, from her company to fund a luxury lifestyle. A lady called Lindsay Caldicott fiddled the books for years at this company, which is called SPA Technique Limited, and supplied parts to Formula One motor racing teams. And finally, the firm discovered that she'd been... Uh, submitting fake invoices, which she then obviously organised to be paid, and the money flowed into her own bank accounts. And they reckon she'd been stealing at least £12,000 a month for years, and the company had suffered and even had had to cut jobs because of this. She'd also been abusing company credit cards and spending money for her own purposes on those. When the company eventually found out what was happening and went through the books, they discovered the scale of her thieving. But the chief executive, uh, apart from the the financial loss, was really upset because he said, 
I'd worked with her for years. We trusted her. We thought she was one of the family and, and look what she did. But I'm afraid that's a very common reaction. In smaller organizations, companies and, and public sector, it is often a sort of trusted insider who it turns out are abusing their position, um, often using fake invoices. Sometimes they might have help from outside as well, but basically stealing money. Another example a few years ago was a, a mild-mannered middle-aged accountant working for Toys R Us, uh, the toy retailer. And uh, he was working in the UK head office in, in Maidenhead in the Thames Valley. And apparently he lived in a semi-detached, modest house, drove an old car, but actually he was living a double life and he stole millions from the firm. And he spent money on sports cars, prostitutes, and even bought property in Nigeria for his secret mistresses. He was finally ordered to repay 3.6 million when he was caught and he got jailed for seven years. And it was a simple fraud again. He created fictitious toy manufacturers, suppliers to the firm, and then paid them £300,000 a month, um, which he could control as the accountant. How nobody spotted that there was nothing actually being delivered against those payments, it's hard to understand. When this story was reported in the press, though, I thought there was one very amusing comment from uh, one of the readers who said, so he spent 2.4 million on call girls and sports cars, and he must have wasted the rest. But of course, it's not really funny. The company suffers, shareholders suffer, and you have to have sympathy with his, his wife and family. I mean, it destroyed the family, not surprisingly. At the other end of the scale, we have huge international corruption, again, based around um, money that's being spent apparently with suppliers. That's the channel for extracting money from, from the company. And we had the Petrobras and Odebrecht scandal in Latin America. Billions of pounds or dollars were extracted, um, bribes paid by suppliers for winning business. But that money didn't just go to to uh, the suppliers or the people inside the firm. It was used to fund political parties as well. So the scandal went way beyond just a, just a company fraud. And in the end, there were prime ministers were brought down, governments were brought down. Um, I think it was the ex-prime minister of, of one country ended up killing himself because of the fraud investigation. So it really was enormous. And it shows what can happen when uh, fraud and corruption becomes endemic in a company or in a country for that matter. Another example of that actually was the Fat Leonard scandal in the States, the United States. Uh, he he was, or is, he's still alive, I think he's in prison. Um, he was a Malaysian businessman who ran companies that provided services to ships that were calling at ports in Southeast Asia. And he managed to bribe huge swathes of, of the US Navy, right up to literally admiral level, to persuade them to use his services when they came into port. And that's ended up with literally hundreds of, of naval people, um, office people and serving, serving people from the, the ships, right up to admirals, as I say, ending up in court or going to prison. And one of the 
quite sad things there was there were several whistleblowers who could see something was wrong, that this company was winning all this work and being paid all this money. And they reported it. But unfortunately, the people they did their whistleblowing to turned out to be corrupt as well. And Fat Leonard used money as bribes, fancy meals and parties and gambling in casinos, uh, and also a common theme, maybe prostitutes as well. And he had a list of, uh, let's say, the, the personal preferences of senior officers. So he knew what to, uh, what to provide for them when they came into port. Now, there are some common themes when we look at fraud and corruption around buying. And one of them is, in most cases, when there is a fraud, the chief exec or the finance director of the company affected makes a statement and says, this was an incredibly sophisticated fraud, very clever gang of criminals. Now, most of the time, that's absolute nonsense. It's, it's not clever at all. It's usually taking advantage of some really obvious flaws in process and policy. So thinking about some of the things we, we've talked about today, just checking before you pay money to a new supplier, just checking that they actually exist, that they're not owned by one of your own staff, that they do actually provide goods and services, and maybe even check that they have provided some goods and services to, to you. Another really obvious step is not having one person in control of large chunks of the buying process. Somebody shouldn't be allowed to allocate budget, uh, decide on the supplier, and make a payment to that supplier. The more people you have involved internally, the less chance there is of one person being corrupt and stealing money. There's lots more to talk about in fraud and corruption. Uh, I'm sure we'll come back to it again in future podcasts, and I'm going to interview some people um, uh, clearly not people who've committed fraud and corruption, but I'm sure some people will have some interesting stories and views as well. But in a moment, let's move on to some of the interesting discussion this week around contracts awarded in the UK connected with the COVID pandemic. A lot of companies are making a lot of money out of activities related to the COVID pandemic in the UK and, of course, in many other countries. And there's nothing wrong with that. There was an interesting discussion this week in the UK about how firms can be incentivized to perform well when they're doing these contracts. Two companies, Serco and Citel, are involved in the UK's track and trace scheme. Serco, for instance, operates some of the testing centres where people can go and be tested to see if they have the virus. And they're also involved in the tracing process. So if someone is found to have the virus, the idea is you can trace who they've been in close contact with and warn those people and ask them to isolate for a certain period of time. And there are hundreds, or I think thousands of people involved in this, this tracing process. 
the whole test and trace uh, system doesn't appear to have worked terribly well in the UK, and I, I, I don't intend to go into that today. But that led to some questions with uh, members of parliament asking the minister involved whether firms like Serco and Citel had performance clauses in their contracts and whether they could be, if you like, punished if they didn't perform well. And the minister, Helen Watley, who's an ex-McKinsey consultant, so you imagine she's a, she's a pretty smart woman, um, said this in a written answer. She said, contractual penalties are often unenforceable under English law. So they were not included in test and trace contracts with Serco or Citel. Now that strikes me as uh, <laughs> a, a typically clever but misleading politician statement. There are some issues in English law about damages. And my understanding, I, and please contact me if any lawyers listening think I've got think I've got this wrong, my understanding is you can't ask for damages that are out of all proportion to the contract and whatever has gone wrong in it. So taking a really simple example, if I ask you to come and chop down 10 trees in my garden and I want it done by the end of this week and you're going to charge me a thousand pounds, if you don't finish it by the end of this week, then I can't uh, sue you for a million pounds in damages. And I couldn't even write that in the contract. Even if you signed the contract saying million pound in, da in damages, the court would throw it out saying, well, that's, that's unrealistic. It's unrelated to the actual work that's been done. However, that doesn't mean that Serco couldn't have been incentivized financially in the contract. And indeed, most government contracts I've seen over the years do have those incentives. And you can do that in, in several ways. So you can use damages using something called liquidated damages. And this is where the two parties agree up front in the contract that there is a reasonable level of damages, a payment that would compensate the buyer if the supplier didn't perform. Perhaps in the example of my trees, if I said, well, if you don't finish it this week, uh, I'm selling the house and I'm going to have to accept a thousand pounds less from the buyer because that's what we've agreed. So actually liquidated damages in that case of a thousand pounds, if you didn't chop down the trees on time, might be reasonable. Another way of doing it, perhaps perhaps not such a great example for my, my, my trees, is to use something called service credits. And this is very commonly used in, in government contracts for things like IT services, uh, call centres, outsource services generally. And the idea here is we define a number of key performance indicators, KPIs. We measure the supplier against them. And if they don't hit their targets, we then apply these service credits. And that will basically mean usually there's an amount taken off the next invoice from the supplier. So imagine if we were running a call center and we might have some KPIs uh, for the supplier that said 99% of all calls will be answered within five rings. Uh, the system will be available 24 seven with a 98% uptime and perhaps something around customer satisfaction. So 80% of the people who, who call the center 
when we do some random checking, 80% say they're happy with the service they received. And you might say for those three KPIs, if you don't hit your target in a particular month, we're going to apply a service credit the next month of 1% for each of the three, or maybe 2%. And you probably aim to have the service credits at a level where uh, not so much that the supplier is going to sort of go bust or want to walk away from the contract, but perhaps put 5%, maybe a bit more of their revenue at risk, because that's enough to get their attention. So service credits could, I think, absolutely have been used in something like the, the Circo and Citel um, tracing work. And then the third way of incentivizing the supplier is just, is just basically making the contract performance related. So you're paying against performance outcomes or outputs. So very simply, rather than agreeing to pay my tree chopping man a thousand pounds, I make it a hundred pounds a tree and perhaps 200 pounds at the end for clearing up all the rubbish. And if he doesn't chop any trees down, well, he doesn't get any money. Again, it seems uh, quite obvious that some of that could have been applied to the, the uh, tracing scheme. So we could have paid Serco, whoever, at least in part, based on how many people they successfully traced and, and managed to obviously record that, um, to say that, yeah, we, we found Peter Smith, we told him he'd been in contact with somebody, uh, here's another, another line on the spreadsheet, as it were. Some of their payment could certainly have been linked to that. So I just don't believe that it wasn't possible to put some performance-related clauses in those contracts. I also find it hard to believe that the government buying people, their procurement managers, uh, many of whom are very smart people. I just don't believe that they wouldn't have thought of that. They're, they're not stupid. So the only conclusion I can draw is that the suppliers refuse to accept performance-related clauses in terms of anything that would actually affect their revenues. And they may have had some good reason for that. If I was Serco, I might have said, well, the data you're giving me in terms of being able to trace people, I don't control that. That's coming from your app, that we we didn't have anything to do with that. How do we know it's accurate? How do we know that people aren't giving uh, false phone numbers or not, um, not admitting who they were in contact with? So Serco may have felt uh, that they couldn't control that and therefore they weren't willing to accept any penalties in the contract. Now, in normal times, as a buyer, I would have pushed back fairly strongly on that and said, look, we've got to have some performance related stuff in here. Come on, be reasonable. Uh, but these are not normal times. And government has been in, in such a, a desperate position, um, keen to do things so quickly, which is quite understandable. I suspect when the suppliers pushed back, government just said, well, okay, forget that, forget the penalty clauses. Uh, forget the performance-related clauses, let's just get on with it. So that's my suspicion. Uh, but certainly don't, uh, don't listen to the politicians when they tell you what you can and can't put in contracts. Uh, because certainly um, Helen Watley was not giving the full story when she made her reply. There are a number of totally legal and legitimate ways in which you can incentivize suppliers to perform well.
Well, that's about it for this episode. Do take a look at the Bad Buying book if you haven't already. There's also a Bad Buying website with regular new articles. And there's even a Spotify playlist I put together because all the sections in the book have a song as their title. Uh, so they make a, a quite lengthy playlist, actually. In the next episode, I'm going to talk about why big programs so often overspend technology programs, construction and so on. And I hope we might have our first guest as well. Thank you so much for listening. This has been episode four of Peter Smith's Bad Buying Podcast.